All right, it's great to see you this morning. Uh, my name is Glenn. Uh, Glenn Barnes, one of the pastors here. Uh, if I don't know you, um, welcome. Glad to see you. Uh, make yourself at home here this morning as we uh, jump into the scriptures. We've been in a series in the book of Acts, and we're going to continue um, on through that. So you're going to want to grab your Bible and have that close by. Um, but before we do that, I need to begin this morning's message with a very scientific survey. And so I'm going to need your help for this. Uh, very scientific. Um, here's what I'd like you to do. Would you you raise your hand if you have ever had any conflict with another human being. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. So there you go. Just what I thought. That's about 100% unless you're already asleep or just I'm not going to raise my hand under any circumstances um, because this may come as a surprise to you, but people have conflict. In fact, it's part of our human nature. One of the things that we see in our human nature is conflict with one another. And there's so many different places that you can have conflict. There's conflict in in friendships, and a lot of us have experienced that. The workplace is a place where there can be all sorts of of different conflict. Maybe in your home, maybe it's with a a spouse or a a child or an ex-spouse. There's all kinds of conflict there. Um, Some of us have experienced the, the heartbreaking conflict between people that we've really looked up to and, and respected. And, and this conflict took place in a place that, that was supposed to be full of love and, and peace and was supposed to be a safe place. I'm talking, of course, about conflict in the church. So here's the deal. If you have experienced any of those kind of things or others, then today's message is for uh, you. We are going to talk about uh, dealing with conflict. Um, and we have got a, a, a lot of ground to cover, so we are going to just jump right in this morning uh, to Acts chapter 15. I want to make sure we have time to cover it all. Now, as we get started, I don't want to be overly dramatic or you know too much on this, but I really believe that every Christian should know the story of Acts chapter 15. Every Christian needs to know the story of what is called the Jerusalem Council. And that's what we are going to talk about um, today, the Jerusalem Council. Because here's the deal. I would not be exaggerating to say the events that take place in the story today have a significant impact on your life and mine still today. The conflict that they had and then the way they dealt with it and the resolve that they came to impacts your life and mine 2,000 years later, including how we do church who we have fellowship with, and honestly, even as big a question is, how does a person even know and be in a relationship with God in the first place? And so this morning, we are going to actually go through a lot of scripture. We're going to read a lot, and we're going to see conflict in three different places. Uh, Two times, I think the conflict is handled really well. Uh, One of those times, I believe it was not handled that well, Um, but in all of these, there's a lot that we can learn about how to deal with conflict inside and outside of the church. But we're going to begin by talking about conflict in the church, because that's the first thing that we see there. Um, And to help us understand this conflict that took place, as I said, almost 2,000 years ago now, I want us to look at a little trailer uh, from a movie that came out just this year. In fact, we showed it in church last Sunday, but if you could understand the plot of the movie Jesus Revolution, you could understand the plot of Acts chapter 15. So take a look at this. Hey, Square. I am not a square. I think we should invite Greg this weekend. What's this weekend? The mountain is high. How are we doing, Southern California? And you're the beauty. 
These people are hippies, rebels against old-fashioned authority. I think these kids need help. What they need is a bath. You're passing judgment on people you know nothing about. Maybe that's why your church is so empty. When God walks in here, brings me a hippie. I'll ask him what it's all about, because I do not understand. This house has a very good vibe. There is an entire generation searching. Slow down, mate, slow down. Just in all the wrong places. If you want to reach my people, you need to speak to them in a language they understand. If I bring them in, I'm going to lose my job. We can only walk through doors open to us. And your church, that's a door that's shut. You've probably noticed we have some guests here today. I'd like you to meet my new friends. Welcome. They don't belong here. Half of them aren't even wearing shoes. They're staining the new shag carpet. They need our help. If you feel like you're misunderstood and judged, you will find forgiveness and freedom right here. That was awesome. Now that door is open any time of day. And if there are some who don't like that, well then that door works both ways. All right, Pastor, let's begin. I was almost done with this, but then you did what nobody else would even dare. This thing that we found, I feel like I belong. You're gonna need a bigger church. Our country is a dark and divided place, but now there's hope and it's spreading. This is your home, and I want you to tell all your friends about it. I love that. I don't know about you, but I get choked up just even watching uh, the trailer. Hey, by the way, if you've not seen that movie, I know it's available out in streaming services um, right now. You can find it on Netflix for sure and, and other places. And I really recommend um, that film. And it does help us uh, a, a lot understand our passage today because it tells the true story, as you just saw, of a pastor by the name of Chuck Smith. And during the late 1960s, um, Chuck Smith was uh, the leader of a church, but was kind of uh, negative and grumpy. And his church was all but dying when he has an encounter with this hippie, this guy by the name of Leslie um, Frisbee. And Leslie starts to tell him about all of these young people that are really searching for God. And he says, it looks like sex, drugs, and, and rock and roll. But the argument he makes is, is what people are really looking for is something that's bigger than themselves, something than beyond themselves. And, and he says that they, they would love to come to your church, but the church feels closed off to us. And as Chuck Smith kind of thought about it, he realized that based on some of his biases that he had, some of his own prejudices, maybe even some rules that their church was, was keeping, that he was actually keeping people that were seeking God, keeping them uh, far away and was setting up barriers. And so Chuck Smith makes the decision that he's going to welcome these hippies, if you will, um, into the church. And right away, there's conflict. There's conflict in the church. In fact, some of the people even leave the church. They get up and walk out those doors. But here's the deal. When the doors of grace and acceptance are opened up to these people, a revival begins to take place, really, that is as big a Christian revival as this country has ever, ever known, because there's something powerful about those doors of grace and acceptance being flung wide open. And that's 
the story in Acts chapter 15. It's very similar to what happened there. So let me just remind you of where we've been in our study in the book of Acts. So remember the gospel starts in the, with the good news after Jesus raises from the dead in Jerusalem. Then it goes to Judea and Samaria. So it's kind of spreading out. And ultimately, Jesus tells them it's got to go to the ends of the earth. And so they appoint the first two missionaries, the guys by the name of Paul and Barnabas. And they're the first kind of foreign missionaries that take the good news out to primarily Greek and Roman cities and Roman places. And to their surprise, they find all kinds of these Gentile people with all kinds of different backgrounds accepting Christ. Their hearts are really open and, and, and they start to, to, to follow after Christ. These are people that look different, smell different, you know, eat different, all kinds of different things, um, but they are really um, open to it. And, and things are going great. Uh, as Steve said last week, it's kind of a roller coaster, that first missionary journey and all the different cities they visit. But by the time they come back to their home church, which is in the, the city of Antioch, when they come back back to Antioch, they are pretty much fired up and they are praising God primarily because there's all these new people that they are welcoming into the church and things are going great until there is a knock at the door. And who shows up but some Christian Pharisees from up at headquarters in Jerusalem. And they come and they said, well, we hear about what's going on uh, over here in Antioch, and we just want you to know that we've got some questions and we've got some concerns about all of these people that are being welcomed into the church and are joining the church. And that's really where the conflict starts, this conflict in the church. So we're going to begin with Acts chapter 15, verse 1, where it says this, certain people, those are those ones that I was talking about, came down from Judea or Jerusalem to Antioch, and they were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Saved. So in other words, this is, this is not a small issue. This is a salvation issue. This is how a person knows God, how a person can be saved. And this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. And so they have this conflict. So let's just stop right there just to make sure we're all on the same page about what this conflict was all about. Now you have to remember before this time, the church was primarily made up of all Jewish Christians. These were Jewish people, but they, uh, they believed in the resurrection of Jesus. They followed Jesus. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, but they were from a Jewish background. Jesus was Jewish. Most of the apostles or all of the apostles were Jewish. And so they just were operating with this idea that if you wanted to become a Christian, first you became Jewish, or at least you began to follow all of the different um, Old Testament laws. And so the conflict was about, must a Christian obey the Old Testament laws? And we're not just talking about the Ten Commandments, because everybody was in agreement when it came to you shall not steal, or commit adultery, or worship an idol. Everybody was in agreement on those things, on the Ten Commandments. But when you look at the Hebrew Scriptures, there are as many as 613 specific laws in the Old Testament, including 248 positive commands. In other words, you shall do these things. And 365 negatives, thou shalt nots. 
which is just kind of ironic to me that there's one for every day of the year, almost just to remind us of all these you shall not do these things. And there's laws about what clothes you can wear. And there's laws about what food you can eat. There's a lot of do's and don'ts about what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath day or on a, on a Saturday. But the biggest test, especially for people that were wanting to join the church, was this issue of circumcision. You see, for generations, circumcision had been kind of like the distinguishing mark uh, for Jewish men. And so a lot of people said, well, we'd love to welcome you into the church, but first you have to become Jewish, you have to follow the laws, and you have to be um, circumcised. So just a reminder that this is before anesthesia, this is before scalpels, this is before antibiotic. And so what this meant was that the new members class of the church was primarily made up of women and children, and the men were like, I'll wait in, you know, the chariot, just let me know um, when it's over. But that was kind of this big thing from them. You know, and we hear that in kind of our modern Gentile perspective, because the vast majority of us are Gentile. We weren't born um, Jewish. Um, We hear something like that, and we think, how in the world could they do that? How could they not accept people that were turning to God? How, How could they they just not accept them. But before you judge too harshly, think about the people in Chuck Smith's church, how they felt when they started opening up and, and all of these people who looked different, smelled different, ate different, had a different background, started to come into the church. You see, there is something in our human nature that wants to surround ourselves with people like ourselves. It's in our human nature. But remember this. This has been the message from the book of Acts from the whole time. God loves all people. God's plan was always start in Jerusalem, yes, but then go here, and then go here, and then make sure you take it to the ends of the earth. Because God's love is for all people everywhere. And when the Holy Spirit first comes, how exciting that is, and the Holy Spirit begins to be alive in them, what is the first sign of the Holy Spirit? People from all different languages and backgrounds hear the message of the good news and are welcomed in. And so you can see why there's going to be some conflict of how they handle new people into the church. And so back to our story, verse 2 continues on. It says, so Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers up there at the church in Antioch, to now go to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. It's like they'd been called to the principal's office. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted, and this news made all the believers glad everywhere they stopped and told the story. Verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything that God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up. By the way, what an interesting phrase that is. Some of the believers who belonged to the Pharisees, because we think of the Pharisees as the ones who are like the the enemies of of Jesus. And in many ways they were, but these are people now who had, had seen that Jesus was risen from the dead. They'd seen the coming of the Holy Spirit. They'd seen all these things, and so they started to believe. But don't you know, when you come in, you, you bring your background with you. And so their background was in all of the rules and all the things that you have to say or have to do. So anyways, these uh, Pharisees believers say, well, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law 
of Moses. And so the apostles and the elders met to consider this question. So this is what's known as the Jerusalem Council. They've got a good old-fashioned conflict. Who's right? Who's wrong? Let's meet together in this historic event to decide. Verse 7, after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by, his whole, by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? And verse 11 is the heart of Peter's argument. He says, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. And that's the heart of the message. We believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. Now, it's super interesting to me that the very first person that stands up to speak is Peter, because we think about Peter as kind of this giant of the faith, and he was. Um, but really, of all of the people, Peter seemed to be the most prejudiced of them all. In fact, he was always kind of, God kind of made him go and, and welcome some Gentiles and make some friends among the, the Gentiles. And the way Peter did that is he would go and eventually he, he liked it. He made some friends. He even liked to barbecue with the Gentiles. He especially liked that part. Um, but then some of his Jewish friends would come. And I don't know if you've ever known someone like this. They were like real close to them. And then the, the others come and they like turn their back. And like, I don't even know these people anymore. I'm going to go over here with, with these people, right? And we know how offensive that could be. Well, that was, that's how Peter handled this stuff. He was very prejudiced, if you will. In fact, it was so bad that the apostle Paul says, I confronted Peter to his face uh, about this. Because even among the apostles, there's conflict sometimes. And so Peter stands up and he gives this great speech and he's making a, an argument about the specific issue, but he also teaches us some really valuable things just about the, the gospel in general. And, and here's just a couple highlights, um, some compelling truths that, that Peter gives in that little talk that we just read there. Um, number one is this, you guys, the gospel is good news. It is not just good advice, or it's not just good rules to follow. You see, God did not leave heaven, become a man in the person of Jesus to give us like some clever life hacks or some tips and tricks to, you know, how to, you know, live your best life or things like that. Jesus came and he gave advice to be certain. Jesus gave moral imperatives. This is how you should live your life. But the heart of Jesus' message wasn't a to-do list. The heart of Jesus' message was a proclamation that sinful people could be made right with a perfect God. And that was good news. It wasn't a list of stuff to do. It was how we could be right with God. And so Peter followed Jesus enough that even though he wrestled with this, announces that no, it's not just good advice, though he gave a lot of good advice. Jesus was more than a moral teacher. He was the Savior. And that's what the gospel is all about. Second thing that Peter kind of gets to along those same lines is that the gospel changes us from the inside out, not from the outside in. Again, just to reiterate, the message of Jesus and the message of Christianity has never been. You may have heard this. You may have even been told this, but this is not the message of Christianity. It is not get your act together, 
clean up, stop doing this, start doing that, and then come to Christ. It is no, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and let him begin to change you from the inside out. Peter gives all this stuff about how the Gentiles are given this new heart because that's the starting place. As we surrender to Christ, he begins to transform our heart. Now that should bubble out and change our outsides, but it doesn't start outside and work in, which is different from all the other religions. All the other religions are get your act together and then you can be right with God. This is by the grace of Jesus Christ, you can be right with God and let him change you from the outside in. So that's kind of the heart of Peter's message. And he says, you know, hey, you guys, how can we put this burden on these new Gentiles? Because I know all of you guys. Peter grew up with all these guys at the council. He's like, I know none of us have been able to follow these rules our whole life. They've just been a burden to us and and, and it's led to us being guilty and not living up to these things. Why would we put that on other people? And so that's Peter's argument. The next person to speak of the Jerusalem Council is Paul and Barnabas. Now, I really wish we had Paul's speech recorded for us. Um, Paul tends to be a little wordy and so maybe Luke just kind of edited it for space. But um, this is what we read about Paul and Barnabas in verse 12. Super significant. It says, the whole assembly became silent because they wanted to hear what Barnabas and Paul were going to say. And so Paul and Barnabas were telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. So the part that Barnabas and Paul add is like a word of testimony. We were there in all these, you know, Gentile cities, and we saw God pouring out his mercy and his Holy Spirit, and there were signs and wonders. And, and so it's not even a theological debate for us. It's just this is what we've seen, and this is what we've heard. And the next person who speaks is James. Now, James is actually the leader of the church at Jerusalem. We kind of forget that, but James is really kind of the the guy in charge. And James is the half-brother of Jesus. And remember that James, uh, growing up, was very doubtful of the whole thing. Along with his family, they, they thought that Jesus was kind of crazy, maybe kind of eccentric. And yet then, when Jesus rises from the dead, uh, James changes and becomes a follower of Christ, who happens to be his half-brother. And now he's the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And when he gets a chance, this is the speech he gives in verse 13. It says, when they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon, he uses Peter's Jewish name. He's talking primarily to to Jewish people. So he calls him by his Jewish name, Simon. He says, Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The word of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen, fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. Get this, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things uh, known from these things, things known from long ago. So Peter gets a chance to make, or I'm sorry, James gets a chance to make his argument. And his argument is this. From the very beginning, scripture taught that God's church would be open to all people. God's heart was always for all people. And, and so we, you know, we, we, we saw that that was what his idea was from the very beginning taught in scripture. And so now James, as the leader of the church, gets to give the verdict. He says, we've heard all this stuff. We've had our counsel. Here's the decision. And you got to think people were so eager to hear. What was he going to decide? What were they going to say? Especially the Gentiles, especially the men waiting out in the chariot, waiting to hear. What are they going to decide? 
And James speaks up in verse 19 and he says this, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Oh, that that would be written on the heart of every Christian. Oh, that that would be written on the heart of every person who calls First Baptist Church home. It is my judgment, therefore, that we would not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. In other words, in James's argument, this is what I hear. I hear James saying that there are things in the gospel message, in the good news, that can be considered what you might call offensive. There are, there are some barriers. The Bible calls them stumbling blocks because the good news of Jesus is good news. It absolutely is. But to really get the good news, you kind of have to start with the bad news first. And the bad news, kind of the starting point of all this is that I am a sinful person, that I don't have my act together, that I'm not as great as I think I am, that I can't live up to whatever standard I would hold. And it's not just me. I've got it. But you've got it too. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the good news starts with the bad news. And I don't know if you've noticed this. People don't love being told that they're sinful, right? And so there's some offense to it. There's, there's some offense. There's some barriers. And then to add to it, you have to kind of make this decision, which is that, and I can't fix it by myself. It's not a matter of self-help. It's not a matter of try these little things. It's not good advice, that's offensive, that it's beyond me. And to make it worse, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. So it's good news, but you, you got to do it his way. You got to surrender to that. And so even in Jesus's ministry, there's times where he lets people walk away, right? Because the good news can be Offensive. Do you know what I, do you see what I'm saying that? I, I want to be clear on, on why I say that. But here's the thing. While the message can be at times offensive, Lord, help us if we do anything that adds to that offense. If we do anything that makes it more difficult than it needs to be for people to turn to God. You guys, that's why Chuck Smith opened the doors of his church. That's why they changed the music. That's why they changed the dress code and they, they changed even some of the language and the methods, methods that were used because far be it from him to do anything that would be a barrier for people that were wanting to turn to God. That's why this church, so I don't know if you know this, this church is over 100 years old. It began as First German Baptist Church. It was originally founded so a lot of the German speakers that were moving to this area could hear the gospel in, in their language. And so that was kind of the heart of it, so that there would be no barrier, no language barrier. Well, eventually it became English, but then about 25 years ago, that's why this church said, you know what, we need to start a Spanish-speaking church. Because Far be it for a language like Spanish or something like that, someone's heart language or, or, or spoken language, would, would somehow they would miss the message because there's a barrier between them and the way they could hear it. That's why this church about 20 years ago said, you know what, we need to start a teen center for kids to, to come because the last thing we want to do is create a barrier that's keeping God's precious teenagers away from hearing a message that they need to, to have and that brings them life. And so if there's a barrier that we can get rid of, we're going to do that. That's the heart of it. In fact, I remember back when, the, when 180 first opened, one of the things that happened right away, it was those kids that started to show up. And people said, I don't know if I want all this stuff, you know, mix them together. But those are precious kids, and far be it from us to create a barrier from people coming to God. 
That's why we said, you know, hey, we need a basketball league because sports can be a big deal. And if sports is going to be a barrier for people to come to God, then let's take that barrier down. And all of that, let me just say, it is worth asking. This is kind of a strong statement, but let me just ask you to search your heart on this. Are there things that you do? Are there things that you say? Are there people you dislike? Are there groups that you keep at a distance or judge that just might be making it hard for those people to turn to God? Because our world needs to hear the good news, and no one wants to hear the good news from someone that they believe doesn't like them. And so James speaks up and he says, hey, it is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for people that need to turn to God. So the resolution, the conflict in this Jerusalem council that's so important took place um, because of godly wisdom. We had all these people stand up and speak. We assumed that there were others and people on even both sides of the issue um, that spoke. Uh, There was a lot of listening to one another. Surprise, surprise, conflict is resolved when we're able to listen to other people. There was a lot of prayer And specifically, we see that they are led by the Holy Spirit. What James says is it seems right to the Spirit and to us to give this answer. And so he says, uh, that's our decision. We don't want to put anything more on you than that. And so they send a letter and they say there's going to be two things that we do ask of you. We ask that you, first of all, abstain from sexual immorality and that you abstain from eating meat sacrificed to idols or strangled in blood. And you say, well, why, why those two things? Well, scholars will kind of debate that. Uh, one of the reasons is by abstaining from sexual immorality and abstaining from meat sacrificed to idols, that would have kept them out of the, the pagan temples. It would have you know, kept them away from those temptations. Um, we also know that sexual purity has been God's standard from the very beginning. It's true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. That's never changed. And I think that one of the reasons they add meat sacrifice to idols is that maybe was one of the most offensive things to the Jewish Christians. They just, you know, it was just beyond what they could even wrap their heads around. So maybe this is James and the apostles saying to the Gentiles, hey, you know what? Out of respect for your brothers and sisters in the church, this is a right that that you can give up as well. And so they write these things down and they send a letter off to these Christians that are just eager to hear, what are they going to say? What's going to be in the letter? And this is what it says when they receive the letter in verse 31. It says, the people read it and were glad for their encouraging message. Don't you believe that they were? And suddenly they began a men's ministry at the church there. Well, there's so many great lessons there. As I said, it's important for us to to understand this story because it just teaches us so much about the message of Christianity in general. But a couple great lessons that I think were handled well in the Jerusalem Council that I think would be great for us to know. Um, And that is that conflicts tend to arise, especially in church, but I think just in our personal lives as well, when we shift our focus, when we kind of just lose focus on what's right, and we shift our focus from grace to law and from outsiders to to insider. So in other words, when we draw our lines so hard and fast that we can't hear the other person, we can't consider their side. And when we focus so much on the insiders, meaning the people that are, that are here, the people that are already here, and we, this is what we want and the way we like it and this thing, and we shift and we lose our focus on what about the people that aren't here? 
What about the people that still need um, to hear? Um, so there will always be conflict when we move from grace to law and we focus from outsiders to insiders. And that is the story of the Jerusalem Council. That is the first conflict. I said we're going to see three. These next two we're going to go through quite a bit quicker because um, that's kind of the big daddy of them all. So the second conflict is actually a personal conflict between Paul and Barnabas. This is not necessarily a theological issue. It is not people choosing sides. This is a good old-fashioned disagreement between two brothers in Christ, Paul and Barnabas. And you read about this story in verse 36 that says this. It says, sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it was wise to take John Mark um, because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement, such a sharp conflict that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. So in other words, in Jerusalem, they had this council and they navigated one of the most, you know, difficult theological issues and cultural issues that you could imagine. But then the very next thing we read is that here are these two supposed giants in the faith that can't get along over uh, this issue of dividing. They end up dividing and going their separate ways. And, and I don't know about you, but I read that. And to me, that's, this is a real heartbreaking story in Scripture. This is a real failure on the part of the early church. In fact, I, one of the reasons we can trust the Bible is the Bible doesn't just give us the, the you know, glossed over version. It gives us the goods and the bads. And in my opinion, at least, um, this is a, a bad one. Now, God does bring something good out of it because even though they divide, now there's two mission teams instead of one. Uh, but that was never God's heart for there to be that kind of division. So at the heart of this disagreement is the question of should they bring this young man named John Mark along on their uh, missionary? team. And so we kind of skipped over this a few weeks ago in Acts 13, but in Acts 13, when they first go out, the very first stop they make is the island of Cyprus. And it says they have a helper with them named John Mark. Now remember in Cyprus, that's where they encounter this sorcerer and there's all this crazy stuff. And so things get kind of intense. And then it just adds that John Mark left them and did not continue on in the missionary journey. What we just read is now several years after that. Yet Paul was holding on to that. Paul is not going to let it go. He said, he deserted us once. He cannot be trusted. He is out. And that brings Paul and Barnabas into this sharp disagreement. And as I said to me, it represents a real failure among these, these church leaders. So we don't know what the issue was um, for John Mark. We don't know if maybe he got sick or maybe he got homesick or maybe... Uh, maybe he, he had family th- stuff at home that he needed to get back to. Maybe there were business things. Maybe he just didn't re- believe that he was called or, or suited to be a missionary. We don't know exactly um, what it was. I assume God knew what he was doing by not telling us what it was about. But here's what we do know, is that there was a failure to yield personal preferences and personality differences, and it leads to broken relationships. They couldn't yield their personal preferences. Paul and Barnabas were both convinced that they were 100% right. This is why he shouldn't go. This is why they should go. They could not hear each other. They could not compromise with one another. 
I also think there was just some personality stuff that was going on. Because to me, at least what we know about Paul and Barnabas, their arguments kind of fit their personalities. Paul was this really type A, hard driver, you know, at any cost kind of guy. Um, That's honestly one of the reasons that the gospel was taken to all these places is because Paul was so intense about it and so focused on it. Paul also knew that there was a lot of sacrifice that was required with taking the message and, and he was willing to suffer. And so if another person maybe wasn't willing to suffer as much as he was, he, he didn't have a lot of grace for that. And that was his personality. Barnabas, on the other side, he's more gentle. He's uh, compassionate. He, or, uh, he's uh, like an encourager. Um, in fact, Barnabas is the guy that comes along and encourages Paul. And so these guys have this different personality. And, and we're not told who's right or who's wrong. And I believe God did that on purpose, right? And maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe the issue is not who's right or who's wrong. Maybe the issue is just that here's these guys that were supposed to be leaders in the church that couldn't work it out, and it leads to broken relationship. Now, I do have my bias about who maybe was right and who was wrong. It seems to me like Paul could have given this guy a second chance. Why do I say that? Because John Mark, for whatever reason he left, was not entirely a slacker. This is the guy who later on wrote the gospel of Mark, right? So he, he had some stuff going on in his favor, and Paul couldn't see that. The other thing, and really the reason I say this, is years later, when Paul comes to his deathbed, and he's chained in a Roman prison, and he's writing his very last words to, to, the, to Timothy, part of what he writes to Timothy is, will you send someone to me? I need some encouragement. Will you send me John Mark, who's always been there for me? And so I think to myself, well, Paul couldn't give him a second chance. Maybe it was the wise thing to do in that time. But that broken relationship meant that he missed a lot of that. Think of the the grace that could have happened if that had taken place. So that's just my bias on that. So that's the second conflict, and that's one that I think didn't turn out um, so great. The third conflict is actually not a conflict at all. It is a conflict that is avoided, but it's a conflict that is avoided because what I really think is a very godly attitude and an attitude of sacrifice from this young disciple named Timothy. In fact, Timothy, I believe, is kind of one of the understated, underrated heroes in all of the book of Acts and in all of the early church, primarily because of what we're going to read here, or in large part. There's many other good things about Timothy as well, but this is where we first are introduced to Timothy. This is a really strange story. Chapter 16, verse 1. We're going to wrap it up here. It says, Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived. And Timothy's mother was Jewish and a believer, but his father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he what? He circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decision reached by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey, and the churches were strengthened in faith and grew daily in numbers. Why do I laugh at that? He said, we're going to circumcise them because we're going to take this message to tell all these other people what the apostles and the elders decided in Jerusalem, that you don't have to be circumcised. 
So the good news requires you don't be circumcised. Timothy, let's go tell them the good news. Why don't you be circumcised? You see why I'm telling you this guy's the hero in the story? He's probably about 20 years old at this point. And Timothy had every right to say, hey, I heard the decision. That's where I'm going with this. Keep that knife away from me. But at great personal cost, here is a guy who is willing to lay down his rights for something bigger than himself. Here's someone who is willing to give up at great cost for the benefit of others, for the benefit of the gospel, for the benefit of all of those more. And our world would be a much better place if we had more people like Timothy. But instead, in our age of conflict and division, we're not taught to give up our rights. We're taught to dig in our heels, to not compromise, to demand our rights. And what do we have? Division and conflict, conflict in our families, conflict in our relationships, conflicts in our churches, conflicts in our nation. Timothy had every right to say, keep that knife away from me, but he saw that there was something bigger at stake, and so he laid down his right. You guys, that is what a life filled with the Holy Spirit looks like, that right there. In fact, as we conclude, our biggest takeaway, our biggest so what is this, is having conflict is natural. It's it's natural. But here's the deal. We are not made to live only in this natural world because our natural world is sinful. We are made as God's children to live supernatural. And dealing with conflict God's way that brings about peace and harmony is supernatural. It is the work of the Holy Spirit alive in us. So as we said in this passage, passages that we just read, there's two good examples and one negative. Do you want to know what the difference is? The difference is the Holy Spirit. In, especially in, in Jerusalem, it says we were led by the Holy Spirit. We did what, what seemed right to the Holy Spirit. Here, Paul and Barnabas have this dispute, and they never turn to prayer. They never turn to the Holy Spirit. They just fight it out with each other and never turn to what God's way would be. And so here's my question for you to take away. As you think about the places where you have conflict, because it's, all of us have it, what would it look like for you to begin to bring the Holy Spirit into that? What would it look to begin to bring the Holy Spirit into that ongoing conflict that you're having with your family member or your coworker or even here at church? Timothy was willing to lay down his rights. And what does it say? The gospel spread. And we still talk about this guy years later. What a hero he was, and may his tribe increase. And maybe there's places where we need to let go of a grudge that we're holding, unforgiveness that we can't let go of, a place that we just know that we're right and they're wrong. And we may be even winning that battle, but we're losing the war. That's how we deal with conflict God's way. God, I thank you so much for your ancient scripture that speaks in such a timely way into our world today. So we thank you, Lord, for your, uh, our, the apostles and the people that have gone before us for when they got it right and when they got it wrong. Oh, would we learn from them. And so I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters here today. Would our church be a place, Lord, that, that it is, uh, does nothing that would keep those who are turning to you um, from you? And I just think of how many places um, all around this church, there's people that are struggling with, with personal conflict. I pray, Lord, that you would give us your grace, fill us with your spirit to have your heart 
And would there be peace that comes from our lives? Lord, we love you and we give this to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.